1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. I'm one of your usual hosts, John Plotz. Um, So today's topic is a brilliant new book arguing that modern literary study remains anxious about the century-old professionalism that betrays the discipline's relation to its amateur precursor, criticism. That book's subtle genealogy of what it means to be bound by a discipline or to have a vocation, which is quite different from having a salary or what Joseph Conrad called two good addresses, it has immense implications, I think, for how we think about and value humanistic pedagogy and how we understand the function of interpretation, understanding and delight. Those are all topics I hope we come back to in making sense of literary works as both monuments and documents. The book is "Professing Criticism: Essays on the Organization of Literary Study," 2022, from Chicago, and its author. I'm happy to say, is with us today, John Guillory of the New York University English Department, award-winning teacher and scholar, author of a uh, numberless influential articles and books that include "Poetic Authority: Spencer, Milton, and Literary History," Columbia, 1983, and the field-transforming "Cultural Capital: The Problem of Literary Canon Forma- Formation," which was recently reissued to mark the end of its third decade as a profound influence on how we understand the sociology not just of literary studies but of the academy generally so John welcome to recall this book
1: Uh, thank you John for inviting me
0: uh it's a great pleasure uh and uh I'm happy to say that John did not come alone I'm honored that today's professing criticism conversation also includes one of my favorite critical professors uh Nick Dames hi Nick um
2: hi john I'm, I'm happy to be the token non-john in this uh, conversation i guess right
0: uh yeah that's true well um we're all here uh gazing at one another through the smoke today um mm-hmm. on the eastern seaboard and uh you can just call out john and you'll be right <laughs> <laughs> um so i should say that nick is the co-editor of the wonderful journal public books he's professor of humanities at columbia and the author of such prize-winning books himself as amnesiac selves oxford 2001 and the physiology of the novel oxford 2007 as well as hot off the press is a fantastic new book that i recently devoured called the chapter a segmented history from antiquity to the 21st century that's princeton 2023 So I should say my guests today are both brilliant excavators of questions that may seem arcane and in fact actually frequently are arcane before their excavation, but that reveal themselves as pressing everyday problems. And so thank you both so much for being here today. Uh, and so, so John, the, the usual recall this book format with a new book under discussion is to invite the author, if he or she chooses to start by laying out what strikes you as the key questions or key claims of the book.
1: So the basic idea of the book is, uh, is implied in the title professing criticism uh, what I wanted to show ultimately uh, was that this, that, that, that there was something odd, something anomalous about this uh, discipline of criticism, of literary criticism, uh, and that the idea of professing criticism uh, is in some ways a contradiction. uh, That if we look at the longer history of the study of literature, going back to antiquity, where the study of literature uh, meant actually the study of all forms of writing that had any value whatsoever uh, in in the perception of of readers uh, in antiquity. um, If you look at that long uh, history, uh, it's only at the very very end of it uh, in the 20th century that we get uh, something uh, that is uh, professional, that can be called uh, criticism, uh, that has to do specifically with the judgment of uh, of literary works, and, uh, and then uh, following shortly on that in the early 20th century, the interpretation of literary works. Uh, so there are lots of ways in which uh, in which uh, uh, writing and uh, in the larger sense and literature, in much more uh, limited sense as I describe it, uh, ha- has been treated uh, over those two millennia. Uh, but I was interested uh, in the book in exploring the, the ultimate uh, and very uh, difficult and, and maybe even intractable consequences of this uh, dual history in which we have. Uh, forms of literary study that are not disciplinarized, uh, not professionalized, uh, and in in which we have um, a form of engagement with literature, namely something called criticism that emerged in in the 17th century that had, first of all, mainly to do with judging works of literature, but which was taken up in uh, uh, the period between the wars. Um, in the university, uh, and su- submitted to all of the uh, uh, um, procedures and, and uh, rituals of professionalization, uh, and in, uh, in, in consequence of that, became a discipline where it had never been a discipline before. Um, so, uh, professing criticism is a is a kind of contradiction, and maybe even an impossibility. Um, I'd like to hope that it's not that it's just an innovation historically, uh, but uh, there are aspects of it, uh, of the of that that uh, internal division between the long history of professional, interdisciplinary literary study and its uh, disciplinary professional form, that continue to trouble us, uh, and and the book is really an attempt to re- engage repeatedly. And from different angles, and in, uh, in relation to different areas of the discipline, with that uh, that tension, contradiction, or uh, impossibility of professing uh, criticism. I'd love
0: to pick up a a dyad that you mentioned there, which I was looking at in the last chapter of the book, which is that between um, interpretation and judgment. Uh, you have a lot of interesting things to say about the. Um, I don't know, professional prestige or importance of interpretation. So like on page 396, you say, we, I guess, meaning we scholars do not like to acknowledge that literary artifacts do not need to be interpreted. Um, So, yeah. Can you say more about that, about the distinction between interpretation and judgment or interpretation and understanding? Because that seems like one of the really fascinating moves in the book or fascinating discussions in the book
1: right um so yeah interpretation um, is is a relation to text that we can consider to be very old in fact Aboriginal um, we're, we're always engaged uh, with texts and particularly uh, complex texts with an effort to understand them um, and and that often requires a complicated procedure it comes to be known as interpretation and interpretation has its own history uh, but criticism in its origins was not uh, a, a, a procedure of interpretation. It was, uh, from its beginnings in the 17th century, all about judgment. And it was only in the 20th century that that uh, judgment and interpretation uh, uh, came to converge in a practice, which was the practice of uh, new criticism in, in the US and practical criticism uh, in in England.
2: That that discarding of judgment, though, John, it, it it feels to me. I mean, this is coming out of your analysis, but also just my sense of having been in the profession a while. It's never quite complete. It can't be quite complete, yeah. right? It 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 becomes the kind of shadow activity or the 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 secret of the discipline. And I I I guess I'm sort of wondering if you you do think I, I assume that there are costs to this. To the yeah. severance from yeah. judgment and the fact that that is something that's not—I mean, maybe maybe that's changing—and I think that's part of your analysis. Is it might be changing at the moment, but it's it's not professionally respectable, but inevitable, right?
1: Right, right. I do think that there are costs. Uh, there have been costs for us, and and one of the costs, and, and a number of people are pointing this out now, because we're in a in a renaissance uh, of, of judgment uh, in the discipline. Uh, it's becoming uh, an activity, because again, that people are, are trying to, uh, uh, to perform and also to make uh, uh, sophisticated. Um, but the cost of it, uh, we've come to realize, is that uh, uh, interpretation is something that isn't obviously necessary for most readers of literature, um, as also for, for consumers of the other arts. Uh, it, it, isn't, it isn't the case uh, that people encounter novels and, and, and plays and poems and feel the need after that, those encounters, after those engagements, to interpret those works, to say what they think in any kind of elaborated way, what they mean. Uh, so uh, what's happened then uh, is that uh, uh, literary critics who started out as principally the ones who showed you how to judge, how to how to, to uh, make the appropriate, appropriate determination of the quality of the work. Um, literary critics have sort of gone off in this other direction and become interpreters. And they've been cut off as a result from the mass readership of literature. Um, now, this is something, as I say, that's happened to a certain extent in the other arts, with the uh, the, the scholarly uh, disciplines dealing with the other arts, but I think with literature, it's become uh, much much more consequential uh, by virtue of the of uh, 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 the capacity of that that break with with criticism as judgment. Uh, it's become much more consequential as uh, uh, the driver of the separation. Of mass readership from uh, academic uh, literary critics.
0: So, John, this might be a distinction without a difference, but are, is your is your understanding at, at bottom that people are still? practicing judgment but only with this super added layer of interpretation upon it or that that they've literally discarded the judgment i mean i guess this is another version of nick's question about what's implicitly still like what the imp- active implicit judgment is whether it's still present or it's actually something we need to r- recover
1: yeah I, I um that's a necessary question yeah right? and it has to be a little bit reformulated i think to uh, to arrive at the terms I was using in uh, my book, because um, uh, what I uh, what I wanted to show was that uh, by the later 1960s, judgment was returning uh, in the mode of uh, not the criticism of the literary work, but the criticism of society, of um, the use of the interpretation of the literary work in order to arrive mm-hmm. at a judgment of society. Um, so it, it was what, uh, so what happened with, it was what I would, I call the reassertion of criticism, but the reassertion of criticism with this different end, with this different purpose. Uh, so uh, 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 some of that judgment sort of redounded back on literary work so that it, it was possible for uh, a number of scholars um, to uh, uh to judge the literary works themselves uh, as uh, as morally and politically objectionable, uh, and and to feel that this had to be pointed out in in literary work in the interpretation of literary works that the interpretation put, put to the service of, of judging in some ways adversely literary works, and that's and that's presented us with this with this perennial problem of um, when we do talk about literary works in the context of a criticism of society. um, uh, uh, What do we want to say about the the value of literary works themselves in that context? Is the the value of the literary work uh, uh, its capacity to disclose uh, aspects of society that that need to be uh, judged adversely? Or is is the value of the literary work uh, it's it's transcendence uh, uh, of, those, of those conditions in society that need to be need to be uh, um, pointed out, uh, condemned, and, and ultimately uh, um, ameliorated.
2: I I feel like John, this the way you present it in your book. It's as if the this question of judgment and its place becomes also tied into a kind of social psychology of what a literature professor is, right and, or even more a, a kind of I don't know deep psychology of what a, of what a, and I, but I'm not I don't know if I have a quite a handle on, I mean even with myself, I don't know if I have quite a handle on what that uh, what that looks like. Is it that we repress judgment? Um, we are aware of making judgments implicit and explicit all the time, but we but they're not spoken. Um, they're in bad taste, or they're, uh, you know, it's, it's it's something that's professionally unwise.
1: Reviewers have never lost this uh, capacity to make judgments of contemporary work, and of course, and of course that's what criticism was originally in the 18th century. When people were writing criticism, they were writing criticism about contemporary work. They uh, the assumption always was that if it was if it was uh, ancient, it was good. Um, so uh, what? The, um, the problem that we have, I think, is that it's very difficult for us to uh, distinguish between what we do when we judge them, uh, because it's something that we're wanting to do more and more of. Um, and it's part of that whole movement that we spoke of uh, Nick, uh, last time, the lateral movement of uh, of, of, uh, of those who are trained in literary study in the academy um, out into the Internet, where um, the activity is much closer to reviewing. Uh, but it's not exactly reviewing. I think it's it's something that is that mixes some aspects of scholarship with aspects of reviewing. Uh, and I don't think that a that a uh, a paradigm has especially gel yet. Um, but I do think that's a, an interesting new phenomenon because, uh, prior to this, these these two things have just pulled apart. Uh, reviewing is where judgment takes place, and it's with reference to contemporary work. Scholarship um, uh, it, it is where interpretation takes place, and it can be contemporary and also historical, but uh, it doesn't necessarily involve judgment of the work itself. It, it, it involves rather judgment in the um, in the transferred sense of uh, judgment of society, the critique of, of society. That's where we went. That's where we went. But we're, I think we're trying to recover at the present time in these, in these internet sites and these, uh, uh, and these journals, again, plus one, um, a capacity to straddle the, the scholarly and the, and, the, uh, and the critical proper domain um, in such a way as to sophisticate uh, um, the practice that that uh, um, we recognize as reviewing. Um, and also to bring that practice the, you're, back to the Your essay on monuments and documents is something we will find
2: really, really helpful to think about. And I, I bring it up because mm. the thing that is, mm. at least from where I sit, not being a creative writer, being on the professional, critical side of things, the thing that seems missing um, would be most immediately missing would be any investment in history, any investment in the history of forms, the history of national literary traditions. Um, and what we are. Con- it seems like we're confronting a situation where we're not sure what the value of that historical purview is anymore. That's constantly being called into question. So it felt to me like you were trying to offer multiple points yeah. in the book, but yeah. particularly yeah. In, in that essay, a, a way of thinking about the value of history that would be usable for us now and not embarrass us with its naïveté mm-hmm. or uh, make us feel more conservative than we want to feel, something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know, John, you, I know you, You, John right. Plots. you, 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 right. you, 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 uh, you know, I, I don't know if you got the same thing right. out of that portion of the book as i did but it was a it was like a a, i I felt like a set of tools Oh, i can i can use the distinction between monument and document to think about what i want how i would defend the value of history and what i do
0: for sure but uh but also uh, so john so so nick you've given the um um the uh sort of positive spin on the power of that chapter is helping us think about like the recoverability of history but i also appreciate john in that chapter that you kind of you know that you want to say that there's a rift here between monumentality and documentality which is not going to be easily resolved it's not as if we can we can plump for well let's just go all in for documentality it's more like we have to keep in mind i think at one point you talk about potentially infinite documentality and finite monumentality like that we that we can appreciate and experience artworks in their for their delight capacity for delight, capacity for raising understanding. And, and that Very coexists right. with the capacity to document and contextualize and you know excavate.
1: Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I first came upon this uh distinction in Panofsky, um I thought it was a, a brilliant insight uh and explained a lot of things to me. But I I also sort of guessed that when I would work this up into uh, a kind of contemporary presentation of the humanities uh, and an attempt to shift the emphasis of of humanities discourse from assertions of the value of the humanities, the the mission of the humanities to the object of the humanities, um, that it was going to be problematic to have this double concept. Um, because a document is not monument, monument is not document, but everything that we studied in the humanities is both monument and document. So uh, or potentially potential monument yeah. Yeah. uh and uh and document. And uh I I wondered, and of course, in you know. My, my worries were confirmed, as my worries always are, uh, that this was just going to be difficult to assimilate. Uh, and, and particularly the language. Um, monument has become kind of a, 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 a disgraced concept or a concept in which the disgrace uh, of figures from the past uh, is literally embodied. So... Uh, um, Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I I worried that the uh that uh, great works of literature, art, music, whatever would drift into association or even identification with uh um monuments uh like the the monument of, of Cecil Rhodes, which was the you know in South Africa that was the initial object of uh, of, uh, of opprobrium um, in the roads must fall movement, which then, which then you know, had a lot of uh, consequences uh, uh, down the line for us uh, up to and including um, the Confederate monuments that, that have been uh, knocked down uh, all over the South and, and elsewhere, even in the South. Uh, those monuments should never have been put up in the first place. Uh, but the word monument, the concept of monument, has another history altogether in, 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 in which these, this narrow use of monuments uh, for nefarious uh, political purposes that you see in the South uh, in the period of Jim Crow, um, uh, that's an anomaly. Uh, if you think about the other contexts, like the context of, the, of a sort of a monument's men, Who saved all of that wonderful art from the Nazis uh, during World War II? Um, That's the concept of monument that Panofsky was working with. Um, This is, you know, this is the concept of Yates' monuments of an aging intellect. So there, uh, there was for Panofsky a way of um, taking these two. data uh, you ha- you, uh, you're, you're working always as a humanity scholar with objects that you value in some way um, not not because they're intrinsically good but because they're intrinsically memorable um, because they constitute our history um, And then you have all of the stuff that we bring around those those monuments those objects, of memorialization and use in order to gain insight into those monuments. So you need you need both. And he saw brilliantly that the that the objects of humanities scholars um, shifted around constantly, such that the the same object that that in one context was a document, functioning as a document, could function as a monument. In another context, so uh, I thought that was extremely useful. I I don't think that that people have taken up on this essay yet. Um, it's uh, 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 um, there is the problem with the monuments uh, monuments concept, um, but I think the theoretical problem that lies behind that is the one that you're you're pointing to, um, uh, Nick, and I think uh, John as well. That the um, when we when we um, uh, look at these objects over the long term, what are we looking at really? Uh, um, history seems very central, uh, and yet not exclusively uh, history in the sense of past time. Uh, and and this is a, 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 a Michael. What was Michael Bay Bay's trouble? In his review of, uh, of professing critic- criticism with this particular chapter, uh, what he saw as the reduction of humanities to history, uh, and, and you can see that in Panofsky, maybe. But I think the I think a better conception, at least I hope, was the one that I came up with of long time, um, in which uh, uh, you have past, present, and future, and all objects within that scope of long time are the objects of, of humanities research, of humanities enterprises. So, any object you study in the present may not have yeah. uh, historical documentation that you could bring to the study of it, but you are studying it because it's situated in long time, because at some future point, th- this object will become the monument uh that 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 you uh that you want to invest in and say this is a valuable thing to invest our time and our research into uh because it belongs to this this sequence of long time and uh, so i contrasted it to geologic time which is human time um even though we interact interact so so horribly and disastrously with geologic yeah uh, time. Uh, I, I uh, actually. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Sounds- no,
0: I, I, I. wish we had time. If If this conversation could be a series of loops, this would actually be a wonderful time to return back to judgment, and mm-hmm. to think about the the concept of judgment. In the terms that you're describing, John, which it's always about the the general or the universal concept intersecting with a particular. Like I mean, I'm really remembering this from Arendt's account of Arendt's account of judgment in her response to Kant, but that notion that, you know, when we say judgment, we're not really talking about a um empyrean view from above for all time. We're talking about how does this particular instance you know, usefully relate? Do you know what what general categories do we need to bring to bear on this one object? So right. the right. the account you're offering here of, of the aesthetic is helping us think about the the one by oneness of our, our right. act of judgment. Right? You
1: know, right? right. You know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, every, every instance is, is different. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to, uh, to use the example of the Holocaust. Uh, at the end of the humanities uh, essay, um, because this is not something that no one would have the slightest defense of who was a credible human being. Um, this was a, but it's a monument. It's a monument. It means it is something that needs to be remembered um, and addressed and understood. Uh, and how do you distinguish that kind of monument? from the kind, which is uh, the Mona Lisa, you know, to take it to make them the most iconically monumental of, of monuments or, or any, you know, anything anything like that, that has a kind of a, uh, seemingly in a radical, in, ra- in a radical substantiality. Uh, so if you see what I mean, so, so the, the judgment, uh, judgment, uh, uh, it can occupy this this um, uh, spectrum from the the strongest possible affirmation of the value of of a monument of preserving it to the strongest possible disapprobation, which at the same time uh, posits the necessity of memorialization. We cannot forget the Holocaust, but are not forgetting the Holocaust. Um, is different from our not forgetting a monument like the Mona Lisa, or, or King Leon um, or, or Joyce's Ulysses, or you know any number of the cultural monuments that we that we judge um, uh, positively.
2: I mean, one way to put this is, and, and this is why the the your reference to statuary um, can mm-hmm. be really, really misleading in certain ways, you know, it or is. confusing. Because what you're referring to with the case of the monument is something that re- has to be alive for um, us, and you have a you have a great term to describe the passage of monuments into documents. You call it, at one point you call it stonification, right? That it's yeah. it's where the thing ossifies, and it literally turned into a statue, and that's the moment where it ceases to live. Um, inevitable, <laughs> right? I mean, inevitable. So there's a Pygmalion aspect to <laughs> this, <laughs> this, this distinction, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah, it becomes yeah. forgettable. Yeah.
0: yeah. Does there's... Do, doesn't George Eliot have a line about the thin music of Samuel Daniel's? You know that we can no <laughs> it's, longer. It's, if the music isn't thick for us anymore, <laughs> it's just thin. So. <laughs> we, right, yeah. right,
2: um, right.
1: Right. I'm, you know, just a sidebar. I was. I, I was very. I've been very interested in those kinds of monuments that. Um, Lose meaning for people by virtue of uh, of stonification. Yeah, um, and uh, songs that you hear too often, you know, Paco Bell's Canon has always been the the uh, prime instance for me. And musicians hate it uh, having to play it uh, because they've had to do it too often, and yet it, it's unmistakably a wonderful piece of music. But it can it can be subject to stonification if it's, if, if the, if the process of memorialization is not done right. Hmm.
0: So what I wish we had time to continue this, but I actually think this is probably a great moment to turn to the final section of our conversation, which is what we call recallable books, where, um, I invite you, maybe Nick, I'll invite you first, since you have a different name, um, (laughs) to name an older book, um, that those who enjoyed this conversation might also enjoy reading.
2: So yeah, and I mean, I, I thought about this, John, and I, I thought, what would be, a, what would be an older book that is appropriate for the context of the discussion we're just having? And and um, I, I suspect I don't know if this counts as uh, one that really needs recalling or not, but the one that comes to mind for me is um, Cather's The Professor's House, oh, wow. which for wow. me is still the I mean, the the still is the best treatment of what it means to be in the career of teaching something like literature, um, and 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 one that I mean, contrary to a lot of other uh, books that take this up, it's not comic, nor is it suffused with self pity, and it's the which I and it's the self pity now that tends to get I think uh, a lot of attention. And there are there are books like that out there. So I, I, I you know, it, it is not to say that it's entirely about the thematics of what it means to be a professor of literature, but 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 that is one of its subjects and it does so in a way that I think nothing else I know does.
0: That's great. Well, so so John, in order to give you the last word, I'm actually going to piggyback on Nick's because I was going to recommend pictures from an institution which is is <laughs> it's, uh, <comedy. laughs> it's the comic. It's in fact it's subtitled as yeah. a comedy. Um, so yeah. it it is, but it's also an attempt to kind of think about the um, you know the the lived experience. Elaine Hadley talks about living liberalism. I guess it's like living living professordom or something. Yeah. You know what yeah. it means to be on a campus and to be you know teaching literature, trying to make literature. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is suffused with the kind of gentleness that I completely agree with you. The cat that professor's house is a, is a greater work. Um, if it comes to judgment and yet there's something so, um, you know, like delight delightful yeah. about the, the yeah. tone of pictures yeah. from an institution. So over to you, John.
1: Right. I, I wasn't thinking of a work of literature, uh, uh I wasn't taking the directive, uh, as, as, uh, uh, pointing me necessarily to a work of literature. So I'd have to, I'd have to think about that. Uh,
0: um, you I, should yeah. take the directive anyway. No, like yes. if you were thinking, yeah, that's, um, uh, yeah.
1: yeah. I, I was thinking much more and, uh, um, uh, thinking that we would probably get to the issue of professionalization and, and professional deformation and, uh, that, that framework, that conceptual framework, uh, yeah. we didn't get to it. That's all right. Yeah. There'll be other occasions uh, for talking about that uh, with you guys or someone else. Uh, but the the book that I'm always uh, trying to point people toward, um, and in a way, I'm trying to point people uh, 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 in a direction that's not bourdieu, <laughs> because... Mm-hmm. So, because I, I, I think uh, um, uh, people conflate my work too, uh, too closely with Bourdieu. Actually, I have pretty significant differences from Bourdieu, but the, uh, the closely related work, which is, yet I think, very different from Bourdieu that people tend not to read is Alvin Gugner's work, The Future of Intellectuals and the Rise of the New Class. Mm. And that's where I originally started to think about the issue of the professional managerial class and the possibility of, uh, uh, of, uh, of thinking about literary study in uh, uh, the context of the sociology of professions and particularly uh, the, uh, the professions as constituting sort of central form of the organization of labor in modernity. Uh, and this is uh, something that I think Bourdieu does really, not Buggier, sorry, that uh, Alvin Goldner does in a way that's very different from Buggier. Um The same concept, cultural capital, he uses the same concept throughout his uh, little book. And it's just a brilliantly suggestive book. Um, and it was sort of secretly important uh, uh, for uh, many of the chapters in the book uh, including ones that you might not have connected with it Uh, um, but it was where i began thinking about uh, where to go uh, with uh, this uh, deliberate uh, disenchanting to use let's use your term from uh, the event at columbia uh, this disenchantment of the profession uh, the attempt to disabuse uh, uh, literary scholars, literary professionals, from the idealizations that uh, that we cling to so so strongly, and, and don't want to give up. That <laughs> um, this was a place to go. Uh, this was a this was a place where I got started thinking about these issues many many years ago, before I read Bluetooth. uh So I just feel that. I owe to this sociologist of the the, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s a huge debt that I've never been able to acknowledge because uh, he's been so overshadowed by Bourdieu.
0: Well, that's great. I I look forward to reading the book. I haven't read it. Um, That's wonderful. Uh, And we'll put up links to all of those books as well as to other things uh, referenced um, in the conversation, in the show notes. Um, So John and Nick, this peripatetic conversation has really been a great pleasure thank you both so much thank
2: you thank you thank you you.
0: and the the same thanks the yes the same thanks so all of you out there listening whether your name is john or not the same thanks go to you listening at home and if you are enjoy if you're enjoying this conversation please do check out the recall this book archives on our website and for all of us at the podcast i'll just say goodbye for now Recall this book is the creation of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. Sound editing is by Kamaya Bagla, and music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. We gratefully acknowledge support from Brandeis University and its Mandel Center for the Humanities. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please forward it to five people, or write a review and rate us wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening.